youths or to children's church. Today we uh, finish our seven-part series on uh, the first letter of John uh, that is entitled Assurance and Encouragement in an Uncertain Age. And we find our text in the fourth chapter. I'll be reading verses 7 through 12. I hope you'll follow along in your Bible or your bulletin insert. And this is where John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. In February of 1947, a young New Yorker by the name of Glenn Chambers boarded a plane bound for Quito, Ecuador so that he could begin his career as a missionary. Uh, The sad thing is, if you know his story, you know that he never arrived. Because the DC-4 he boarded, a passenger airplane, uh, ran into the side of a 14,000 foot tall mountain and tumbled into the ravine below and there were no survivors. Before leaving the Miami airport, Chambers wanted to send his mother a quick note, you know, that sons sometimes do, just one of those thinking of you kinds of notes, but he couldn't find any stationery, and so finally he found this page of advertisement with just one large word on it, three letters. Why? And so he scribbled his note hurriedly all around that big why in the middle of the page. And then he dropped it in the mail before he boarded his plane. After Mrs. Chambers learned of her son's death, his note arrived in the mail. Of course, she recognized his handwriting, opened the envelope, opened the page, and saw this big question, why? I wonder how often you and I have asked that question in our own lives. How often have various decisions, circumstances, illnesses, various griefs led you straight to those three letters, W-H-Y, why? No doubt this was the question that the disciples of Jesus asked when he was arrested and his life snuffed out on the cross. 
Why? Why would God let this happen? This question was probably on the mind of Joseph of Arimathea even as he approached Pilate and asked for the favor of burying the body of Jesus. Of course, the full answer as to the why of Jesus' death was still several days away for Joseph and the other followers of Jesus. When Jesus appeared to them, he would make it plain to them why he had to die. As he does to the disciples on the road to Emmaus that Luke tells us about in his gospel. You know, he says that Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets and explained to them what had happened in the last few days. All Joseph knew was that he was a disciple of Jesus. And that must have been enough to motivate his gift of love to bury him in his own tomb there in Jerusalem. An act that fulfilled scripture according to Isaiah 53. Now this passage before us today is like most of the rest of the passages we've taken a look at in this series. And that is to say it's jam-packed with deep theology. And there's lots of different ways uh, that I could have chosen to go with this sermon. But I want us to think a moment about this question of why that's behind the death of Jesus because John speaks to that in our text. But before he answers that question... Uh, he says that God is love there at the end of chapter, uh, verse 8. God is love. You know, we have four statements in the New Testament that tell us who God is. And three of those are from the pen of John. I think it was the first sermon in this series we saw where... John told us that God is light. And in this text today, he tells us that God is love. And over in his gospel in the fourth chapter, he tells us that God is spirit. And the writer of Hebrews at the end of his twelfth chapter tells us that God is a consuming fire. Now John Stott makes the point that it's important to hold all of these together as we talk about who God is. That's why I bring it up. For example, God is love, which means that all His activity is loving activity. And therefore, Stott says, if He judges, He judges in love. Yet, if His judging is in love, His loving is also in justice. He who is love, is light and fire as well. Stott says, far from condoning sin, his love has found a way to expose it because God is light and to consume it because God is fire without destroying the sinner but rather saving him. And as John makes this wonderful statement that God is love, then he says in verse 9, In this, 
the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. We've talked about before how God reveals some of His attributes to everyone. We call that general revelation. For example, in Romans 1, Paul is talking about general revelation when he says what can be known about God is plain because God has shown it. How? Ever since the creation of the world, His invisible nature, namely His eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So every time the world at large looks at what God has created, they find out something about the eternal power and deity of God. But John is not talking about general revelation in our text. He's talking about what we call special revelation. When he says that God's love was made manifest among us, that word translated as made manifest or showed, if you have the NIV, refers to the disclosure of things formerly hidden. In other words, never before in all of history has God given this kind of revelation of who He is except through Jesus Christ. As one scholar put it, Christ is the unveiling of God's heart. He is God displayed vulnerably before the world. And notice, too, that in this verse we see a cause and effect. The words, so that, are our clue. God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That's the why of God's love from John's perspective to the readers to whom he's writing so that you and I might have eternal life. The uh, Greek form of the word zoe is used there. Now, if we're given the gift of life, eternal life, in and through Jesus, then obviously, spiritually speaking, we aren't alive. And if we aren't alive, that means we're dead from a spiritual standpoint. You know, this is the point that Paul is making in Ephesians 2 when he says, And you he made alive when you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us in Jesus Christ, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. Now, we usually focus on ourselves there, made us alive together with Christ. But look at what else Paul's saying. He's saying that Jesus is alive, made alive together with Christ. You see, Jesus means life because He is life. I normally wouldn't quote Emerson in a sermon, but he has something relevant to say. He once put it this way, cause and effect are two sides of one fact. 
cause and effect are two sides of one fact. And the fact is, Jesus is life. Jesus tells us in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And wherever Jesus is, you have life because He is life. As John put it in the opening lines of his gospel, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Or as Martha so bluntly put it, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She knew that Jesus is life. And there can be no death with his presence. But there's not only a why of God's love but also a how. And we've seen this before back in the third sermon of this series. As we've mentioned before, John sort of teaches in this circular fashion uh, where he overlaps and he comes back to the same topics again and again. We see it in our text today in verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He Loved us and did what? Sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, uh, when you think about it, this is a scary fact, but we're only nine weeks away from Advent. I know Patrick and the choir will find that uh, a scary fact if no one else does. And all during Advent, we typically key on the Incarnation. The fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But for John in this passage and with what his readers have gone through and are going through, we can see that God's purpose in sending His Son Jesus for John at this point in time is not about the incarnation. It's all about the atonement. This is John's emphasis. Jesus has come in order that you and I might be placed in a proper relationship with a holy God, even sinners that we are. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And lest we fail to see it, notice who does the loving first. It's not us. It's not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. The focus is not on us, it's on God. And what He's accomplished in Jesus and how He's revealed Himself and His character through this wonderful gift of His only Son, who became obedient unto death on a cross. Our nature is to sin. But that's not who God is. God is holy. God is light. He is pure. God is love. God's nature is to love and send. His nature is to initiate, to search for the lost, to comfort and reach out in grace and mercy, His nature is to provide a way when there is no way. 
It's precisely because of who God is and what He's given in Jesus that the penalty of our sins has been covered. It's been dealt with. As the writer of Hebrews puts it in his 12th, I mean his 10th chapter, in, in concepts very similar to how John speaks. He says, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith. You remember how John has talked about all through this letter the assurance that we can have. And he gives us various uh, signposts on which to hold our assurance of faith. The Holy Spirit being one, loving one another, being another. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now we know and have talked about before in this series that John is writing in the midst of a time of crisis. But notice that instead of placing blame for everything that's been going on in his readers' lives and for that group that left the church and all of that, instead of placing blame, John is emphasizing the remedy. It's one thing to say love one another as he does in verses 11 and 12, but John throughout this letter reinforces the demand to love with deep theological truths that make love possible for you and me in the first place. Therefore, as one scholar put it, he points the way for men and women to be grounded powerfully in God's love and then be able to experience a transformation that will affect community life. That's a kind of sterile statement. Let me put that in some other words. John envisions servants of the Lord Jesus like you and me who have been so changed on the inside that reconciliation with the church and the relationships found there is a natural byproduct of our growth in our spiritual lives day in and day out, week in and week out. We've been so changed on the inside and, and because of the power of God's Holy Spirit, His enabling power, whatever kinds of disagreements we get to in the life of the church, whatever we have to deal with from a grief standpoint or anything else, we have the love for one another. That makes that possible because God first loved us in Jesus Christ. I think this is why he completes this text the way he does in verse 12. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. In other words, God's Holy Spirit is in us and helps us to grow in grace and in faith until again in the next verse or two following our text remind us that it's the Holy Spirit in us that gives us assurance 
of our faith. Or to go back to Hebrews 10 again. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son. There, the, 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 there, there's his fellowship that John talked about at the beginning of this letter. Not neglecting to meet with one another as is the habit of some. But being here in worship together. Enjoying the gift of fellowship that God has given unto us. Where we can love one another. And support one another and pray for one another and encourage one another and forgive one another and on and on we can go. You see, this kind of living is what proclaims to the world around us that God is at work in this place. That His love is being perfected in us week in and week out, which is one of the many ways... We carry out his chief end, our chief end, which is to glorify God. That's our purpose in life. And the Holy Spirit helps you and me do that each and every day and confirms to us who God is and what he's doing in our hearts and lives and what he's doing in the world at large. And may we continue to glorify His name to His honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.